This is March of History. We left off in last episode with Julius Caesar in the law courts and Cato prosecuting the people that had headhunted for Sola during the prescriptions. And I told you at that time that the next episode, meaning this episode, we would come to a, a turning point or a culmination in, in Caesar's career, something, uh, a climax. Not the only one, but a big point where his debts really come to a head. But before we even get to that story, I, I want to add a few things to our narrative so far. Does that work for you, Brendan? Sounds good to me. All right. So I don't think I've made a great or done a great job of explaining one of the things or one of the characteristics I love most about Julius Caesar and one of the reasons why I chose to do a, or we chose to do a podcast on him. I've read a lot about many different great figures throughout history, and they're almost always like grim doer of deeds. You know, they're, they're bent with a single purpose and grim determination upon their goal, and nothing's going to stop them from getting there. And they're not very pleasant people to be around. Uh, I mean, to name examples, I mean, Napoleon wasn't an awful guy, but he I certainly wouldn't have wanted to work for him. You know, Genghis Khan was ruthless. Alexander was brutal. I mean, most of these guys, you know, they're not happy people to be around, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense that, you know, there's so much competition. You don't end up to that top point not being a bit tired, a bit grim. So, I mean, it, it kind of shows that, I mean, I guess some people are, you know, have a lot of natural talent and start off at some point, some level of, of success they would just naturally get to. And, I mean, it seems that Caesar started off at such a high point that he, he wasn't too tired when he got to the top. Yeah, maybe that's it. But I mean, like, you look at like, say, Sola. I mean, he was a pretty ruthless, grim guy. I mean, he liked to he liked to party and all, but people were afraid of him, right? I mean, there, there's lots of examples of people like that, and I think that's kind of the norm. You know, very serious, very focused. That was not Julius Caesar. Caesar seemed to have a love and passion for life and everything in it, which is one of the reasons I love reading about him so much. He seems to have enthusiastically gone from one struggle to the next in his life, and his life was not easy. It was filled with struggles and failures and setbacks, but he seems to have loved every moment of it. And I love that positive vibe that's such a change of pace that he brings to history. And he really positively enjoyed everything he did, including his work and his personal life. I mean, just to give you a few examples of, of the things that he was good at and seemed to have done and enjoyed giving speeches. He was, he was a wonderful speech giver and seemed to be enthusiastic about it. Acting as a lawyer in the law courts, he was fantastic at that. He loved the politicking in Rome, at least for much of his life he did. Maybe later on he doesn't as much. Uh, we'll get to that. He loves uh, the many relationships he has with the women in his life. Uh, he loves socializing, dinners with friends, socializing with family and other politicians and the people of Rome. He loves training and honing his military skills. He's known to be an expert horseman. Uh, he loves military campaign when he's on campaign and all the hardships that go into military campaign. You know, low rations, sleeping on bare earth floors, being far away from home, sore in the saddle, marching miles every day. He loved campaign and he made his soldiers love it too. He loved legislating new bills. He loved writing. He was the original debonair man about town, you know, the guy that had a lot of 
style and sophistication and loved being about town with the people socializing. And he loved being around people. And for the most part, people loved being around him. That's something that I think is, is important to say. And one of the things that differentiates him from many other characters is that he seems to have been going through life very affably and enjoyably rather than grimly determined to get to the top. Yeah, I mean, I, I know what I've found in life is that if I'm doing something that I enjoy, whether it's considered that something, you know, to be something difficult or considered to be something easy, if you're good at something, you'll enjoy it a lot more than if you're bad at something. If you're bad at something, and maybe it could even be something that, you know, you you kind of enjoyed at first, but then, you know, once you get around other people, you're not <laughs> you realize you're not as good as them, you start to not enjoy it as much. So, I mean... I think that it helps that Caesar is born with a lot of talent. It makes it a lot easier to to enjoy all these things in life when it comes so naturally to you. That's no, that's a good point. I mean, when you are good at everything you do, when you're better than everybody at everything you ever do, sure, it's easier to love everything you ever do. <laughs> right. But it's it's almost as if he. I don't know. I, I feel like when, when people get very serious, it's because they're trying very hard, right? So the fact that he stays so relaxed and enjoys it the whole time almost makes it feel like he wasn't even not at full gear yet, you know? Yeah, that's something interesting, interesting to think about. That you know, if he were really pushed, like how far, how far do you push him past uh, the you know, or whatever we saw him, uh, whatever we've seen him operating at up until now, yeah. or you know, throughout his career but i i also think that maybe his personality was just more geared towards love because it it wasn't like he loved it and was not taking it seriously i mean he got more work done faster than any politician had ever seen in rome they were they were dizzy by the speed he got things done so it wasn't that he wasn't working hard he just seemed to enjoy all of it yeah i'm sure he didn't you know suffer from any kind of you know depression or anything like that like i'm sure he, he had a natural optimism as well yeah no, it seems to and, happen and you know the success compounds compounds on itself and you do well at something you're naturally good at something to begin with and then that kind of sets i guess you know you have an, an optimistic outlook on life and that compounds on its own you know the initial talents that you had and so you do even better yeah no i agree and he's got a lot of patience with people too You'll see as the story progresses, and maybe you've seen already, but occasionally that that his, that patience does fray, and his and his temper shows, like when he yanked on that prince's beard in last episode yeah. uh, during the law courts. You know, he, he's prone to the occasional flash of a real temper in public life, but it, it rarely happens. But when it does, it's noticeable. Now, I want to make a point on the Republic too before we go forward. We refer to it at this time as the Roman Republic, but it really would be far from what we would consider a, a republic today. In many ways, it was more a club for a certain sect of aristocratic families to help each other out and exclude all others, like a good old boys club, than it was an actual republic. There was the same families would win the same magistrates year after year, generation for generation, and they despised and looked down upon new men like Cicero and Marius. They were you know, very snobbish towards them. And the only reason that these men rose to power is by their sheer talent and abilities and hard work that propelled them up in spite of all the resistance that they got from these families. Now, they may be accepted eventually if, if one of the old noble families sees 
this new man as somebody that can help them get to the top because, you know, as we talked about, politics is always personal in Rome. You know, like the like Julius Caesar's aunt ends up marrying Marius. But in general, there's this snobbishness about the Senate that they don't want new people. Because every new person that comes in means that it's tougher for them to win a magistracy because then that person and their families is competing as well. You know, they don't want more people added to the competition. They want to keep it the way it is. So how about, I mean, speaking of, you know, Morris marrying into Caesar's family, I mean, in that case, isn't there a benefit? Wouldn't it be a strategy for families to bring in talented people to bolster uh, their own family to to move their family forward in the, you know, it's tougher for everyone else, but doesn't that benefit them? No, it does. And that was actually a strategy of some uh, families would be, you know, if, if your family had this august name, but no talent, and you saw another family that had a ton of talent, but no traditional name, because Rome was very traditional. Even the electorate trusted names that they knew and, and new names they're kind of skittish of. Uh, you would combine, you know, the talent with the old name to create, you know, uh, two families working together towards hopefully the same ends and both bringing something to the table. So that wasn't uncommon. And that's what Marius did with Julius Caesar's family. Yeah, it's it's interesting how much emphasis is just placed on name. I mean, today you could get your name changed. I would imagine back then that'd be <laughs> there'd be some certain significance to, to that. And you, you probably wouldn't even be allowed to, I mean, obviously not to. To one of these uh, noble names? <laughs> no, not yeah. I mean, wow. <laughs> yeah, actually, that comes up later. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, but no, it, it is very unusual because they're very proud of you know with their, all their ancestors, and it's kind of funny in in Rome when you read throughout the history, like you'll hear the same names again and again, the same family names, and oftentimes the family will always represent like one side of politics. You know, if you're talking about, you know, one conservative, august senator in Caesar's time. You could go back and read about 200 years earlier, and you're going to have a relative of that guy representing the same interests, which is very interesting because it's almost like the same character plopped throughout history, throughout time. Yeah, yeah, just re- resurfacing, uh, getting reincarnated. Yeah, yeah so- that, that kind of makes you wonder. I mean, are these people thinking at all about their their political views? Or are they just getting indoctrinated each time? buy into their family's dogma and you know it's repeating the same the, the same following the same lines that their predecessors their ancestors did it's a good point and i i think that they're i think we should be careful about like putting blanket statements like i've been doing on you know what rome did and didn't do because it, it was individualized I'm, I'm certain there are families that just kind of went along with what their family did and there are other families that, you know, each person born was an individual that, you know, really thought through their political views. And there were families that people, you know, had a traditional way the family should be behaving and, you know, they went against the grain. I think there was all of those things, but it's just, I yeah, would say, to look at those, uh, yeah, those families throughout time, yeah. like, yeah, you'll just read about them again and again and be like, oh, another Claudius, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know exactly that, you know, what kind of family that they are, even though it's 200 years earlier. Sure. Now, of this kind of this little club of, of the senatorial families that, you know, would win the magistracies, the curses, the norm again and again, Caesar was definitely part of this club. You know, he was a patrician Julii. He went back to almost the founding of Rome. You know, he was definitely part of that club, 
But Caesar decided to betray all the quote codes of his little of the little sect of families and actually I guess that code would be to look out for each other and exclude all others and you know benefit or pass laws or or veto laws to benefit you know themselves and, and their friends. And instead he chose to advocate for many of the downtrodden and disenfranchised and went around the Senate to direct the people for his support. And he did so with astounding ability. And this is why many of Caesar's senatorial peers hated him, but the people loved him so much. Now, Caesar wasn't the first member of, you know, one of these families to break rank, be a, quote, traitor to his class, like, you know, FDR. There had been more radical populares in the past, namely the brothers Gracchi. And we've mentioned them briefly in the past, but they were two brothers that were the sons of or grandsons of Scipio Africanus, the man who defeated Hannibal on their mother's side. And every morning or every night when their mother would put them to bed, she would say to them as boys, I'm tired of being remembered as the daughter of Scipio Africanus. I want to be remembered as the mother of the Gracchi. And that is how she's uh, remembered today. And there's actually a statue of her, I believe, in the Ohio State House in Columbus, Ohio. But these two brothers were, they were plebeians, but they were very aristocratic. You know, they had this bloodline of Scipio Africanus running through their veins. And they decided, screw the Senate, you know, we're going to represent the people. They saw a lot of injustice they felt in the Roman society, and they tried to fight for it. And they ran for tribune of the plebs multiple years in a row, which was illegal. But they did so because they felt the Senate was doing a lot of dirty tricks to try to prevent them in their first year. You know, they didn't start doing illegal strategies out of nowhere. But, you know, it was definitely illegal to run for tribune multiple times. And Tiberius, the older brother, because they were actually 10 years apart, he tries to run a second time. And I think before he gets a chance to actually win, the Senate clubs him to death and his supporters during a, a vote. But both of these brothers, they try to bring bills directly to the people rather than through the Senate, because that was the thing you could do. The Senate did not pass laws in Rome. The people did, which is interesting. But the laws were supposed to pass through the Senate, and the Senate would you know, make edits and give their approval to the bill. And if the Senate voted approval on it, then you would take it to the people for them to kind of rubber stamp it. But the Gracchi noticed that, hey, that's not really the way things have to work. We could skip the Senate and go directly directly to the people, and there's no law against it. That's legal. So they started doing that, which enraged the Senate, as you can imagine. You know, usurped their authority completely, and they would accuse these people that were representing the interests of the people – or I'm sorry. They, they would accuse the Gracchi, who were representing the interests of the people, of you know usurping king-like authority onto themselves and using the people as their tool to get there, which they're not entirely wrong because it is a lot of power in the hands of one person then. And the other thing that they would do is they would use the veto power that the Tribune had to shut down everything in government, shut all of it down until they got what they wanted, which was not really how the veto was, was intended to be used. It was intended to protect the rights of the plebs when patricians were trying to pass bills that were not in their interest. But the Gracchi used it to shut everything down as kind of a, you know, do what we want or we're going to keep the government at a standstill. And the Senate dealt with both of these brothers, traitors to their class and their supporters by just butchering them in the street, you know, killed them all, which is definitely not legal either. 
So <laughs> their complaint was that Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus had done illegal things, but their response was very illegal, you know? So I don't know how much moral high ground you have about law and legality when your response to somebody doing something illegal is to act in an illegal manner. Now, the only reason I mention that is to say that Caesar's not so extreme as these guys as to provoke this kind of reaction from the optimates, from the uh, the bony, the, the conservative senators of of the Roman Senate. At this point, he's not gone as far or as fast as the Gracchi did, and he's still looked upon as a member of the establishment, if a troublesome member. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that the the Gracchi use that kind of you know stonewalling technique. I mean, usually, and we've talked about in the past with Cato that it's usually the optimates that are blocking the popularities from uh, changing things. But, but yeah, in this case, it sounds like the Gracchi are using this this veto power to to just create a stalemate in the you know in the wall making body. Yeah, that is an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. There seems to have been during the time of the Gracchi and during Julius Caesar's time a big issue with people using or following the letter of the law, but not following the spirit of the law, right? Mm. So kind of abusing what it was originally meant for. So yes, you could go to the people and skip the Senate. It's not really what you're supposed to do. And much of the Senate and much of Roman policy was based upon traditional norms and not written laws. So, yes, you could use the veto to shut down the entire government. It had never been used that way before. It was never intended for that purpose. It was an emergency measure to prevent the aristocrats from screwing over the poor. You know, it was not meant to be used the way the Gracchi did. So there seems to be a lot of that going on, too, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just interesting. I mean, the Gracchi probably would have defended themselves by saying that the poor are, have already been screwed over. You know, they're living in poverty. They have no land. They're all living in the urban slums. We need to use this veto to get attention to it. Uh, right, yeah. Yeah, so the Gracchi, you said they're plebeian, right? So are they yeah. They are plebs themselves. Yeah, they were plebs. Yeah, okay, by this but time. They're still of like pretty high social status there. I mean, to yeah. say you're a pleb does not necessarily mean what they are. They are a peasant poor. Or? No, not at all. Yeah, by this time in the Republic, plebs can be basically noble families. You know, you become a noble family by having one or more members of your family win the consulship, and then you're a known commodity and you're a known family, and you can kind of repeat that cycle generation for generation. Originally, it was the patricians that were the ruling class under the kings of Rome that once they overthrew the kings, essentially made the Senate as their own little club to rule over the plebs. And then the plebs withdrew their labor at various points throughout the history of the Republic as kind of a strike during times of need, and the, and the patricians had to give up power to these plebs. And then different plebeian, plebeian families got into the Senate and into you know nobility by breaking in and getting the consulship. So by this point, there's plebeian families that are very old and august and, and noble. Oh, so it's, it still sounds pretty tough, though, to get into that establishment. You have to have a family member become consul in order to do it. That pretty seems, much, yeah. I mean, how do you, you know, you have to think it'd be tough to even become consul because you're, you're a pleb in the first place. So how do you, <laughs> you know, yeah. how do you get the support to, to get elected? 
at first the consulship was reserved only for patricians until the plebs uh, protested against that and they had to allow – it became like one patrician, one pleb, and then it became – it didn't really matter whether they're patrician or pleb. But yeah, it's it's – I mean, Rome was a meritocracy in many senses compared to, say, like medieval Europe, but it was not in like today's world where anybody can do anything. It's very, very tough. Like you can break into those ranks, but you have to be somebody with major talent, like Gaius Marius or Cicero, to get there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems funny to me, like. So, I mean, I would imagine, uh, did the Gracchi, were they from, like, a a nicer area than, like, the slums that Caesar is from? I don't really know where they were from, actually. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if, like, it just seems odd, it, hard to wrap my head around that Caesar was living in the, these slummy areas, and, and he was considered this, you know, patrician class. And meanwhile, they're probably plebs that lived in much nicer areas and, and had... Yeah. You know, the families had done much more. Yeah, I say it's definitely a foreign concept, especially in the U.S. when, you know, we don't really have, you know, political. I mean, we have some political dynasties, you know, Bushes, Clintons, but it's not the same. You know, like it was in Rome where, yes, you could have all the money in the world, but that didn't buy you an august name. That didn't buy you prestige. And a patrician could still have this regal name, but be poor and, and live in the slums. Like Sola had come from the slums, too even though he was a patrician. So, yeah. you know, you were, it was a meritocracy in some ways that even as, like, being a patrician alone is not going to keep you afloat. You have to have talented family family members. Otherwise, you're going to, you know, slowly decline and, and end up like Caesar's family. Yeah, I guess maybe one way to think of it is, and not to compare it too much to our, our politics today, but if you were to, if, if there was some Bush or, or Clinton or something that, that was in some, uh, I don't know, Detroit slum or something. I mean, it's not that you would think like, oh, they, this person's going to definitely be super talented, but you'd at least mention that person if they were to run for something. And then that's, you know, a much bigger shot than anyone else would get to begin with. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, people remember the name. But if you go too long without winning any positions for your family, yeah. people can forget your name. Right. So getting back to Caesar and his story – we left off at 63 BC. He had prosecuted in the murder courts using that ancient law from the kings of Rome, the guy Gaius Riberius, to prove that point. Later that same year, Rome's high priest, the Pontifex Maximus, died. And this triggers an election. Now, it's interesting because this is the high priest of Rome, but there are, it's an elected position by the people. This is pretty odd, right? Now, I think Sola right. might have changed that to be to appoint for the Senate to appoint somebody as Pontifex Maximus, but the Romans like their tradition. So after he died, they went back to elections. And it, it's an interesting position because the popes of the Catholic Church, even today, hold the title Pontifex Maximus, essentially means, you know, head pontiff or head priest. So. 2,000 years later, or more than 2,000, like 2,050 years later, the popes are still holding the same title of this priesthood that the Romans had back then. I think that's, I think that's really cool. So to give you a little bit of idea about the position, Pontifex Maximus, 
it holds great moral and religious power in Rome at this time and immense prestige. It's considered to be the most prestigious office in the Republic. It's not a typical stop on your cursus honorum because it's a position that's held for life. So it's not often that this comes up for election. And it also comes with, in addition to the prestige and all the religious power, moral authority you get, and the fact that you have it for life, it also comes with a mansion that's right in the forum. It's this like ancient mansion from, I don't even know how old at that time, that the Pontifex Maximus got the rights to and was able to move themselves and their families there. So now they had this old-time, famous mansion that they could invite people over to, and they lived right in the heart of political activity in the forum. Now, this is a position that was mainly meant for senior senators, kind of a, a cap on the end of their illustrious career or, or career spent serving the republic you know, very well. And when the current Pontifex Maximus dies, two of the candidates running, Quintus Lutatius Catullus, or Catullus, you remember him, he's the guy that's challenged Caesar a number of times. He's kind of the head of the optimates. He's the one that challenged Caesar in front of the people about putting up the statues of Gaius Marius, and Caesar kind of won the debate, and the people cheered Caesar on. That's Catullus. He's kind of the arch-conservative. And another guy, I struggle to say this name, but Isaricus, I guess. Yeah, Isaricus, he fit that mold perfectly, too. And Plutarch calls them both, quote, persons of the highest reputation and who had great influence in the Senate, end quote. But there's another candidate. And that's a 37-year-old dandy junior senator who had not yet been consul, never mind censor. And he was looking to add to his, as Tom Holland says, quote, loose belted image with a touch of more traditional prestige. And that's Julius Caesar. So, so I mean, yeah, yeah, so Caesar at this point, I mean, I'm just wondering, aren't there other positions that he would, and I'm sure there's some strategy behind it, but aren't there other positions that you would think he'd, He'd run for. I mean, is this the only one that's up for uh, for a new office, uh, a new person in the position at this point? Or it's a good question because there is a waiting period between positions that you have to hold. So, like, you couldn't be a praetor until you were, you know, I don't know, thirty-eight or whatever the age is. You couldn't be consul until you're forty. So, you know, you would finish his aedileship, and then you'd be kind of not sitting around for a few years because you got to be out actively politicking and making yourself known and, and forming alliances and you know giving speeches and making sure nobody forgets about you but you couldn't run for any positions in the meantime but caesar should, like he had basically caesar had no business running for this position it was not meant for somebody of his age it was not meant for somebody of his accomplishments meaning that he you know he wasn't old enough to be some august elder statesman of roman society he was very much a man on the make, a rising star. And that was not, you know, you weren't supposed to elect somebody like that to the high priesthood of Rome, right? You would want somebody that's older and has a lot of moral authority already to be that position. So now, I mean, it's a, it's a prestigious position and someone who has done a lot of things in their political career is likely to get it. But as Pontifex Maximus, are you actually implementing political power yourself or is it more of a uh, prestige position? That's a, it's a great question. It's more of a soft power position, right? 
as opposed to hard power where you get to you know influence laws and, and pass legislation. It just it, it gives you a lot of authority. It gives you a lot of prestige and it, it marks you out as somebody who's a big deal. Right. It gives you a lot of authority in religious matters and just makes you seem all the more like a pillar of the republic. You know, you oh, that's the Pontifex Maximus who just walked by. So right, it's, it's yeah, a very yeah, it's prestigious a nice position, cap. but you yeah. don't really get any hard power from it. I mean, you get to live in the forum, which I don't think anybody else gets to. So that's that adds to your power because then, I mean, proximity is everything. You know, they didn't have cell phones and laptops. So if you're not living in the forum, if you're not living among, you know, where everybody's doing their politicking, then how can you know what's going on? That really right. can't be understated how much a, a, a mansion in the forum means to social people like the Romans. That is a big deal. So right now I'm trying to picture what exactly the forum looked like. I mean, to say like if, you're, if there's a mansion within it, so I mean, is this like a square area more, or is this like a like how how are the the bounds of the forum and what exactly? Yeah, is it is in the forum? To be honest, I mean, I've seen many descriptions, many drawings of what it looked like. It changed throughout time. You know, it, it wasn't always the same because Rome was very old, but. Basically, it seems to have been kind of a square, I believe, or a rectangle with buildings kind of on the outside surrounding it. And this mansion that the Pontifex Maximus had, I think, connected with or backed up to where the Vestal Virgins were. And they kept all of the wills and like uh, those kind of documents for Romans. So you would lodge your will with the Vestal Virgins before leaving for battle or something like that. And then if you did die, they would draw out the document and show your family. So, I mean, there's a, there's a few other buildings in the forum. Honestly, I should have a better description of it than I do, but I've never found a, a great description of it myself. But it is kind of just a rectangular area where people do business, where they, you, the Senate, that's a good point. The Senate doesn't always meet in one place. The Senate meets in many different temples throughout the city, probably some more than others, depending on you know how big the crowd's going to be that day things of that nature, but many of the votes that the people would take would be held in the forum. So say the, the Senate approves a law and they bring it to the people to approve, that would be done in the forum. Oh, yeah, so that I didn't realize. So if they're voting, and because you said Pontifus Maximus is a elected position, so they would have held the vote, just had everyone. I mean, they can't have everyone in Rome, right, to the forum. How do they, I'm wondering how they, went about that to and you know i mean who knows people would try to vote twice i mean how i wonder if there's any like accountability uh for that type of stuff oh there was a ton of election rigging you know <laughs> just like oh, yeah. <laughs> just, just different kinds of it so, so but that's the thing you wouldn't necessarily win votes by everybody in rome voting you would win votes by packing as many of your supporters into the area as possible at that particular time right because people had jobs. They, they weren't all just sitting around the forum waiting to take votes all day. And I, I doubt there was like paid time off to go take a vote, right? So there were you know people that were political junkies and maybe had the money and the time to be there or had no job and could be there. Or maybe their job was you know, they were paid by some politician to show up and you know roughhouse some, some of the, the other, other supporters, you know. But yeah, not everybody would vote. So you would just try and get as many of your supporters and hope that yours – outvoted theirs in some cases outmuscled theirs yeah yeah no that's that's such a different way to think about you know the voting process just you know physically how many bodies can you uh 
get into the into the forum and then how many can you push out from the opposing party <laughs> yeah. no it really was a very physical process and it wasn't really supposed to be but it becomes increasingly so later during caesar's career it becomes you know really aggressively so where it's solely about how many bodies can you get in and how many of the opponents can you force out yeah, you got to have a lot of uh, skinny supporters i mean you want to have the big burly <laughs> ones to beat up on the that's true supporters. yeah yeah that's true too so I'm, I'm looking at a, a map of the forum right now, or a map of uh, that part of Rome from Caesar's time. So, I mean, I wish I could show you this, and maybe if I have a website in the future, if we have a website, we can put up this picture. But you have the forum, and then you have the house of the Pontifex Maximus kind of backs up to it with the temple of the Vestal Virgins. And there's another temple of Castor. Maybe the Senate would meet there. And that was the temple that Bibulus referred to, remember? He said he he plays the Pollux to Caesar's Castor. And so what exactly did he mean by that again? Because it's called the Temple of Castor and Pollux, but people would just – it's long-winded. So people would just call it the Temple of Castor. So Bibulus said essentially he played the Pollux to Caesar's Castor, meaning people would say it was the aedile ship of Julius Caesar. And Julius uh, Caesar that shows, even though Bibulus paid for a portion of it. Now right, also right. in the forum or on the edge of the forum because it is an open square – is the rostra, which is like a stage that people would get up to speak on and speak to the people before a vote, and the comedium, which is, as I understand it, almost like an amphitheater. I could be wrong about that, where they would hold a lot of the votes and line the people up. And then the Senate House is directly behind that. So all these things are in the same area. And Rome's got seven hills, and, and this is you know all by the Capitol Hill, which is why they call Capitol Hill today in the U.S. Capitol Hill. But yeah, probably the vote would have been taken in the shadow of this very mansion that people were trying to get. But the mansion was only like one of many things. From Caesar's perspective, yeah. you know, that was a, that was a big selling point. But the very fact of him even running is a scandal. You know, like the fact that he's even running is, is absurd to a lot of people and it is scandalous and they can't even believe it. He has no business running for this position and it's a massive risk. But Caesar, he's not one to be discouraged by tradition or to be constrained by it. And he decides to stake his entire career on this single election, which he does not have to run for. Yeah, yeah, it's a big risk. And I mean, I guess fortunately for Caesar, he tends to have luck on his side. Yeah, the luck of Caesar is famous. But it, who's it? Ben Franklin said, I'm a, I'm a big believer in luck. And I find that the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah, yeah, it's a great one. Classic. Now, to your earlier point, Brandon, Caesar's living conditions now are in stark contrast to you know what they could be with this mansion in the forum. He lives in the Sabora, which you know we don't know exactly what his house was like. But we know that this is this is the slums of Rome. It's a poor area of Rome. It's home to brothels, uh, lots of shady characters, lots of you know say poor immigrants to Rome would live there as well, which is no knock on them, but you know there, there's just there's more crime in this area. You know it's considered a shady area. And that's where you know the immigrants are forced to live because they're new to Rome and they haven't established themselves. But Caesar sees his family and says, you know, we are established. We are the you know the Julii, and here we are living in poverty like this. This is crazy, you know. And he wanted to restore his family to prominence. You know, most of the aristocratic families lived up on the Palatine Hill, which is where all the rich mansions were. Caesar's family was far from that, and you can imagine a lot of those kids probably grew up together and knew each other, you know, from the earliest times because they're all neighbors. 
And Caesar had to tell them all, you know, when they all walked home to the pal- to the Palatine Hill, oh, I'm walking this way. I'm going to uh, the Sabora. Oh, you live in the Sabora? You know, like, I'm yeah, sure probably that never was... had any friends over his house, so he went to their house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was, he was probably that guy. And he's not just, this is not just himself, you know, living at the Bachelor. He lives with his family, lives with his wife, lives with his daughter, he lives with his mother. And they're, they're all, you know, living in this Sabora area. And Caesar's determined to get his family out of the situation. You know, he doesn't have money, he borrows tons of money for various things, but, you know, he does it for show and to make an appearance. And I don't think he had the money to you know, just buy a mansion on the Palatine. And I should mention, too, Caesar, he's not just a popular senator representing the interests of the people. He knows the people by name. You know, many of the urban poor probably considered him to be one of their own. You know, he lives among them. He grew up among them. So he's not just like the Gracchi who were this well-off family that took on the cause of the poor. He grew up among these people. Now, he wasn't the same level as them. I'm sure they were very deferential to him and his family, you know, being patricians. But still, you know, he, he grew up among them, and I'm sure they had some kind of affinity for him for that reason as well. Yeah, I wonder how much that shaped Caesar throughout his life. Like, would he? how different would he have been? Would he have been an optimist? Say he grew up in the uh, on the Palatine Hill. Would it have changed his political views, or would it just have changed, like, the way he went about things? It's a good question. It's hard to really know, you know, but it's yeah. a great question. You know, would he have been different had he grown up in a different area? And you remember that we talked about, you know, in a number of episodes now, Caesar's massive debts. And so he, he's taken out like unbelievable, extraordinary debts to get to this point in the polit- political ladder. And he's only like halfway there. He's still got to win the praetorship and then win the consulship and then get a province to pay off all these debts. And he's already at this like unbelievable scale. And he decides, you know, to gamble when he runs for Pontifex Maximus, even though he had no business doing so, because he had to take out a whole bunch of more loans, additional loans on top of the ones he already has to run for this position. So from his perspective, you know, what are the pros? The pros are immense prestige, moral authority, power, a position of great respectability. He gets a mansion, gets to move his family out of the slums, a big time flex. And he gets the position for life. But what are the dangers of this? He takes on additional massive debt. He gambles his entire career and life on this one move. And this was not a gamble he needed to make. I cannot stress that enough. And he makes enemies of the elite optimists by doing this because they see this as their right. You know, They've worked their entire career to get to the point where they would be considered good candidates for the Pontifex Maximus. And then in comes this kid has no business running trying to steal steal the election they're not gonna be happy with you yeah so i mean what is the motive here what is caesar's or what's the plan i mean there must have been some other position or maybe there there just wasn't any or uh maybe there weren't any that were you know big enough jump as he wanted to take to fulfill his his ambitions I think, I mean, he was always a gambler, and I think that he saw a gamble that he felt could pay off and that he had a good chance of winning, and I think he went for it. I, I think it's as simple as that. I think he felt that the risks, you know, were great, but the reward was unbelievable, and, you know, he maybe he sized up the competition and felt like I could definitely win against them, and he went for it. And Yeah, yeah you had mentioned earlier how, in, the other, in a previous episode, how he had 
won that debate against uh, Catalyst. Catalyst, yeah. Catalyst, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I wonder if that made him feel a bit puffed up like he could beat this guy. Maybe, yeah. Maybe in personal interactions, he had dominated Catalyst a few times and felt, you know, he had gotten the measure of the man. Yeah. Now, we kind of have contradicting reports on the election itself. According to Suetonius, who's one of the ancient historians, he says that Caesar bribes the electorate on a massive scale, which is definitely possible. He never did anything quietly or small. You know, if he's going to do anything, he did it big time. Uh, and, you know, bribing for elections was almost commonplace at this time in the Republic. It was more of, a, of how much did you bribe the electorate, not should you or not. <laughs> but Suetonius says that he bribes them on a, a massive scale. Plutarch makes no mention of that, so I don't know if it's true or not, but we also have contradicting reports on the final result as well. We are told that the race was neck and neck by Plutarch, and he says as the election was approaching, Catullus gets nervous. He gets nervous because he has the most honor and the most dignitas, which is a very Roman quality, similar to dignity, but not quite, but he's got the most to lose from this contest. If he loses to somebody like Julius Caesar, I mean, that's appalling. That's a big dent to his ego and the authority he has in the Senate, right? So he's getting nervous that Caesar's coming in too close from what he's hearing. Uh, and the election's going to be a very close one. And he sends a messenger over to Caesar with a large bribe to drop out of the election, like a significant bribe that would pay off a good chunk of Caesar's debts. So at this point, you got to think from Caesar's point of view – He's run for this election. He spent a bunch of money, but this guy's offering him more money than he spent on the election to get out of the election. So he could just drop out now, not have to worry about winning, and get a bunch of money and kind of get a win out of all this, you know? He he ran for election and didn't even have to win and, and got a bunch of money that he would have otherwise not gotten, you know? Seems like not such a bad deal considering his massive debts that he has. But that's not Julius Caesar. He's a risk taker. So he replied to this messenger, Plutarch says, quote, he was ready to borrow a larger sum than that to carry on the contest, meaning that he would rather borrow more money than Catullus is offering him to continue the contest than accept Catullus's bribe. And rather than seeing this as a good way out and something that you know he can do to recoup his money that he spent on this election and, and pay off other debts – Caesar sees this offer as a sign of weakness, and he immediately takes out more loans to spend on wooing the electorate. He basically doubles down and says, you know, if he's trying to approach me to bribe me out of the election, he's nervous. He's weak. And Caesar goes for the throat and just doubles down and, and borrows even more money. It's an interesting example of his personality. You know, he didn't get nervous. He didn't, you know, flinch. He saw that Catullus was the one flinching, and he goes for the throat. And so I guess I guess again he he's able to borrow money because of his talent and so I guess he has that sense of security that you know these people wouldn't give me this money you know even though I've already borrowed a lot and I'm borrowing more they wouldn't do that if they didn't believe in me so I guess that's sort of with each new pot of money that he gets he gets a new new reassurance that he's capable enough to to use the money in the way that will propel him in his career. That's that's an interesting way to think about it. I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, I, w- I had always thought about it as he's just taking on more more risk, more debt, more 
Well, I, mean, I, I imagine that the pressure's building. The more money you borrow yeah, from these I'm guys, sure the more is. they expect from yeah. you, and the more the pressure builds on you to meet their expectations. Maybe he didn't see the pressure that way. You know, maybe he saw it the way you say. But also, I'll say, I imagine that if most young senators would have approached creditors and said, "Hey, I want to run for Pontifex Maximus. Lend me a ton of money," they would have gotten laughed out of the building, right? Yeah, so it, it's yeah. one thing to say, oh, Caesar borrowed a bunch of money, but I'm sure he had to sell the heck out of these guys to get them to put up this money for such a, a radical gamble. Right. And Caesar's not just winning this election for himself. He's winning for all the creditors that have ever lent him money, which is a ton. Now, this really was like win or nothing for Caesar. He realized that if he didn't win this election – and people only kept on lending him money and kept on letting him not pay his debts because he kept on winning. The second he were to lose, they were going to turn on him. And he knows that if he doesn't win this election, his political career is finished and he's finished in Rome altogether. And the morning of the election, his mother walks him outside with tears in her eyes at the house in the Sabura, and she goes to kiss him goodbye. And Caesar says, quote, my mother, today you will see me either high priest or an exile, end quote. That's what Plutarch says. Another version goes that he said to her that he would return as Pontifex Maximus or not at all. That's what Suetonius says. So he, he's very aware. He says to his mother on the morning of the elections, he's walking out, hey, I'm either going to return having won this election or I'm never going to be allowed to return to Rome at all. Talk about pressure, you know? Like the other two candidates have pressure to win, you know, but they're just going to look bad if they lose. They're not going to be banished from their home. Yeah, yeah, no, for them it's just they've already had this illustrious career, and now this is just a a crowning achievement on top of that all. For him, yeah, it's all or nothing. Yeah, he, he's staking everything on this. I mean, imagine a politician running for office today, and, you know, if they win, they get some, like, fabulous position for life, and if they lose, they have to leave the country forever. <laughs> And everybody hates yeah, right. They, they, <laughs> they lose their citizenship. <laughs> yeah, they get their citizenship gets revoked and they get banished from the country. I mean, how many people would risk that? Probably not many. Especially not coming from Caesar's position where like he doesn't have to do this. Right, yeah, that's what still shocks me that, you know, he would even I'm sure there's some other position that he could have run for, but but yeah, I mean I guess. I mean there wasn't really at this time, but I think the very next year he runs for Praetor. So it's, it's, I don't okay. think it was that there's nothing else to run for. I think he just saw it as, hey, this only comes up once in a lifetime because it's, it's a four life position. And I'm not going to okay. wait until the next time somebody dies to get this. It could be 30 years. Okay. Now, now I see it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, w w there's conflicting reports as to whether the election was close or whether it was a landslide. But either way, Caesar wins the election against all the odds, against everything that should have happened. Caesar wins. He becomes Pontifex Maximus. He moves his family out of the slums, the Sabora. Suetonius says that Caesar won more votes in Catullus and Isaacarus' tribes than they won altogether. Let me, let me rephrase that. So he says that because the tribes would all vote, and I think they would have like an individual vote each. Again, I should do an episode on how the electorate works. We won't get into that now, but... If you couldn't win your own tribe, it's like not being able to win your own home state in a presidential election, right? It's It doesn't spell good news for you if your own tribe doesn't support you. And they're saying that Caesar won more votes in their own tribes than they won in the entire election. 
So in well, that telling, hard to, uh, hard to believe. Yeah, in that telling, it's not even close. In the other telling that Plutarch says, it's neck and neck, and Caesar scrapes by and wins. This is the maddening thing about ancient history: is you know, there's conflicting reports, and you know, it's never sure who you can believe. But on a positive note, you can kind of just believe whatever you want, you know, <laughs> and you can never be proven wrong. So it's kind of a nice thing about it too. At least as a non-professional historian, I can do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever, whatever's the best story. <laughs> exactly. So because he wins this election, his creditors will now allow him to continue borrowing money and continue rising through the political ranks. And he has more prestige than he's ever had before. Up to this point, he's been seen, as I said in previous episodes, an effeminate dandy, which was a damning accusation in ancient Rome, which was so masculine dominated and then you know he was he was the head of like the you know cool sect and, and all that uh you know the, the fashionable people but he didn't have traditional authority traditional prestige and now he has it in spades by winning this position it was a massive risk but it paid off and that's reflective of his entire career we will see it again and again where in fact, you could pretty much say his entire career is, is one giant gamble because every, you'll see every time he's doing these these big gambles, he only is allowed to continue if he wins. If he loses at any point, he's done for. Whether it's in politics or in warfare, he does it again and again where he just bets on himself. He basically says, you know, I, I understand that if I lose, I lose everything I've, I've worked for my entire life, but I don't think I'm going to lose. And he bets on himself again and again. And I, I find that like, inspiring, you know, that somebody had that kind of self-confidence. But again, I guess it's easy to have that kind of self-confidence when you're absurdly talented. Right. And yeah, I guess I wonder, you know, how much of these gambles was not looked because he was talented and how much, you know, maybe there are other people that were, you know, every once in a while that were as talented, but took these gambles and it didn't pan out for them. Yes, actually, I believe next episode, we are going to talk about a man who almost represents what Caesar could have been, a patrician that's a man among the people that is charismatic in many ways and borrowed huge debts and gambled on himself and does not win. And we'll see what Caesar's life could have been if he had bet on himself and lost. But we'll save that for next episode. Until next time on the March of History.